Welcome to Can Biotech Lead an Economic Revolution? Uh, my name is Sandy Starr, uh, and I work for the Progress Educational Trust. That's a charity that seeks to improve choices for people affected by genetic conditions and infertility. This debate uh, is sponsored by the biotech company Immunocore, which is also one of the festival's uh, battle champions, as you can see on this banner stand uh, here. Um, and this debate is part of a strand of debates uh, taking place in this room all day uh, under the heading Battle for the Economy. And in this debate, we're going to uh, narrow our focus somewhat. Um, the Life Sciences Industrial Strategy, commissioned by the UK government this year, uh, we have someone on the panel who contributed uh, to that document, um, says of the life sciences that there are few, if any, sectors more important to support as part of the industrial strategy. Uh, it goes on to say that, uh, to call for high-risk moonshot programs, as they're called in the life sciences, and one of the strategic goals of the document that's set out is um, to create two to three entirely new industries over the next 10 years. Is that feasible? Elsewhere, people have long talked about uh, synthetic biology playing the same sort of role in a new industrial era that the advent of synthetic chemistry played in the British-led uh, industrial revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. Is that bold uh, or is it bonkers? Here to answer these questions, we have a very distinguished panel of speakers. Um, I'll introduce them briefly in the order in which they're going to speak. First, we'll have uh, Dr. Elliot Forster on my right. Uh, Elliot is chief executive of this debate sponsor, Immunocore. He's also chair of the Med City Project. He has a long and distinguished career in the biotech and pharmaceutical industries. So wearing both a scientist's hat and a businessman's hat, hopefully he can help us separate what's realistic from what's unrealistic in this, in this whole field. Uh, next, on my immediate left, we have Bethan Wolfenden, uh, who's one of the creators of Bento Lab, an easy-to-use DNA laboratory so small uh, that at last year's Battle of Ideas, she actually brought it with her and showed the audience how it worked. She may have done so again today with a newer model, but I'm sure we'll find that out uh, in just a moment. And she'll be talking about what it's like trying to be innovative and entrepreneurial in this area um, and where the whole field is headed. Finally, on my far left, we have Professor Robin Lovell-Badge, Robin is Head of Stem Cell Biology and Developmental Genetics at the Francis Crick Institute, uh, and he's heavily involved in genetic and reproductive technologies, not just the science, uh, but all of the related policymaking and ethical debate and public engagement and so on. He joins us today after two weeks uh, discussing genetic innovation uh, in Hong Kong and in Beijing, so perhaps he can bring us some news and some lessons from there. Those are our speakers. They're going to speak for five to seven minutes each in the first instance. I've whizzed through their introductions to find out more about them and their many uh, accomplishments on the Battle of Ideas website. But for now, uh, without any further ado, Elliot, can biotech lead an economic revolution? Yes. <laughs> we can go home now. Sandy, thanks very much, and once again, absolute pleasure to be at the Battle. Um, I love coming here every single year, and uh, our organization is delighted to uh, help keep the thing uh, moving along. And if you happen to be a uh, STEM student and you've paid full price, then go back and get your money back, because what we funded was for you to get in here 
uh, at a much more uh, reasonable uh, cost uh, than if you were me. Um, so, can the biotech sector um, deliver a brand new economy? I do believe uh, it can, but I think we need to be really careful uh, with respect to our definitions of biotech and how we think about uh, the economy. Um, I guess any good business uh, needs a market. Um, would you say that the biotech or um, the life sciences uh, sector has a market? Well, uh, yes, it does. Uh, our global uh, disease burden uh, grows uh, every single year. Uh, by the end of this decade, HIV will be the most prevalent disease on the planet. So this is a disease that uh, in the uh, West um, we've largely controlled, uh, not cured, but largely controlled. Uh, it continues to expand right across uh, the uh, world uh, and will be the single biggest uh, health burden uh, on the planet if you set aside um, overeating, which of course um, is a new health burden for us, and not having enough access to calories, which is the other end uh, of the same spectrum. So uh, biotech, uh, in a sense, has, and life sciences have an opportunity uh, to begin to serve if they're not already serving uh, those needs. If you bring it uh, much closer to home and think about the UK and the life sciences industrial strategy, um, which is part of uh, the industrial strategy that was talked about in this room uh, in the last uh, session, which was an excellent session, by the way, uh, then, then what is it doing for the economy already? Well, um, in the UK, uh, the pharmaceutical and life sciences sector turns over $64 billion uh, a year, um, which is one of the uh, top five of all of the sectors. Clearly, everything in the UK is dwarfed by financial services, but if you look uh, beyond that, then uh, it's one of the uh, very big players. It actually has uh, one of the few sectors that has a surplus uh, in trade, uh, over a billion a year trade surplus, um, and the productivity level uh, is actually the highest of any sector. It ranks uh, higher than uh, house building, uh, which is the, believe it or not, the second highest, uh, way higher than uh, financial services and so on. It's got a, a ratio of about 107, uh, which is very good uh, for any sector. Um, but let me go back in history a little just to talk about how uh, this bit of the industry uh, can really change an economy. So a very old friend of mine who's an African-American uh, doctor who trained at Harvard Medical School. Uh, when he was training uh, back in the 1980s, uh, he would um, be on the north bank uh, of the Charles River. Um, just north of him uh, was a little town called Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, Cambridge, Massachusetts um, at that time uh, was a pretty run-down place in the mid to late 80s, and certainly not a place that an uh, African-American uh, medical student could go wandering around on his own uh, at night. Today, just 30 years later, that same Cambridge, Massachusetts, has one of the highest per square foot rental costs anywhere on the planet. And that includes London and New York and so on, because the biotech industry, for reasons best known to itself, set up there and now absolutely dominates the economy uh, around that. It happened to be useful that Harvard Medical School was next door uh, and, of course, uh, MIT uh, correlate with them. Of course, all of that's true, but it just shows you the difference uh, that can occur. Uh, let me take you uh, to another location. So if you uh, have the opportunity to go down into the uh, south-east uh, corner uh, of the Republic of Ireland, you'll find uh, similar corridors there which are back-to-back -back with pharmaceutical and biotech industry manufacturing plants. Again, about 25 years ago, the Irish government said, we want to win, uh, and they did some nice tricks with the uh, 
fiscal code, uh, but also set up a fully integrated economy. So from students and technical colleges through to people who build manufacturing plants, they established the whole thing, and now every single one of the top 20 companies on the planet have, from a pharmaceutical and biotech perspective, uh, have manufacturing facilities there. And that economy continues to go and thrive. So two examples of where historically um, we've managed to find uh, the uh, benefit for a macroeconomy through a very narrow focus uh, of a biotech uh, and pharmaceutical uh, lens. But of course, um, all of that um, is in the past. Um, and what is it that we have to do now and, and what are we thinking about uh, in the future? Well, clearly, um, there are some obvious economic impacts uh, to a thriving uh, biotech sector and some of those I've just touched upon. Others, of course, less uh, direct, and you think about uh, the pulling through um, of a uh, health-driven uh, economy uh, in which productivity, because we're all a bit more healthy until we're a bit older, uh, continues to grow and thrive. And we heard uh, in the last session about the struggle we've had over the past uh, 20 uh, years or so with a declining level of productivity uh, compared to uh, some of our peers. And that decline um, in part is to do with the fact that we have an aging population and that aging population uh, are burdened by chronic illness, cardiovascular disease, um, neurodegeneration and, uh, and cancers. And again, an industry can indirectly um, at least begin to drive productivity through the maintenance of uh, those uh, diseases. However, not the maintenance of, the, of them, the improvement of them. <laughs> yeah, the next time we'll do the maintenance. Um, I guess two more points. I'm, not, I'm conscious that I don't want to go on forever, but um, one of the things, if we look forwards, um, is to think about how we integrate uh, technologies. It's absolutely clear um, that uh, no single element of a biotech uh, sector can rely upon what we used to do, which is chemistry and biology uh, and disease management. We now have to work into and are moving quickly into an area where there is a convergence of technologies. And, and if you have a chance to have a look through uh, the, the glossy version of this, that is the life sciences industrial uh, strategy, um, which uh, we're referring to as part of this session, then you'll begin to see in there pillars um, of the new uh, technologies within biotech that are being used. But they depend upon data information technology. They depend upon uh, app designers. They depend upon uh, the ability to prosecute uh, all of those elements with a patient focus. It will see the emergence in a massive way that we can't even imagine today of genome editing. I mean, that is just on the horizon and it's on its way. Sandy's an expert in that. I'm sure he could talk to you about it. You'll begin to see uh, the changes in way patients not only are treated for disease, but prevented in having diseases. Each one of you will be the masters of your own data set. And each one of you will carry your own data set, not just to a traditional hospital or GP unit, but into other treatment and, um, and management facilities, and again, in ways you just can't imagine. It will see the emergence of uh, industries that today uh, do not exist. Imagine buying online your socks 20 years ago. It didn't happen. Um, this year, Amazon will represent 50% of all retail sales in the UK. Half of all retail sales go through Amazon. Isn't that bonkers? Didn't exist 20 years ago. There are new industries which are coming along uh, every single day and they are beginning to emerge uh, for us. So our future in biotech will depend upon the future of 
tech and media and data and patients, and of course, in the UK, the NHS and other medical sectors around the world. And then finally, if I may have one more minute, I'd just like to talk about something that was picked up, and I've just added this, in the last session, um, which was talking about, for the UK, regional imbalances. And regional imbalances in the economy are self-evident. So we'd heard about the uh, level of expenditure here in this city on public transport uh, compared, in, and in the last session we made that as a comparison to Manchester, and there are clearly per capita enormous differences, orders of magnitude difference. And those differences also exist in the health economy. However, part of the reality is, and I don't know whether there are any graduates from the University of Hull or Oxford in the room, but Hull University is never going to become Oxford University, not in two or three or four or five generations. And it's also highly unlikely that it will be the other way around. But that's okay. And it's also true that investment in an economy in which the Golden Triangle, so that's Oxford, London and Cambridge, uh, dominates 95% of all of the investment that goes into life science occurs in that region, dominates the UK, is probably also okay as long as the rest of the economy benefits. Now, what is also true is that if you have a stroke or a heart attack, where you need to be is where my parents live, which is in Hartlepool, because the number of people who have strokes and heart attacks there as a proportion of the population is much higher than in Wimbledon. The stroke unit in Wimbledon is probably okay, but it doesn't see as many patients as the one in Hartlepool. So if you're having a stroke or you're having a heart attack, get as quickly as you can to Hartlepool. <laughs> but that also means that there is a difference in health economy. And the, and the meeting of those two, the research and development economy and the health economy, are what will drive our macro economy into the future. Thank you. Thanks, Elliot. <laughs> Bethan, what's your take? So I'm not going to be using um, or offer any opinions on macroeconomy. I wanted more to give my perspective as someone who is um, starting up a company. Um, just looking back a little, before I went into biotech, what had inspired me to get involved um, was a scientist called Jake Heasling. And he was using synthetic biology to create um, a precursor to a drug for malaria, artemisinin. And he found a way of doing that with synthetic biology that reduced the cost by tenfold. So instead of making it for $2, he was making it for 20 cents. So when I was younger, this was hugely inspiring to me, um, this amazing technology that had the power to um, completely disrupt the way that lives, and lives were saved. Um, and it took me a, about another 10 years to actually get hands-on with that technology um, and start to use it and learn how that technology could be used. Um, so in, in terms of what we do and our company are doing, um, our goal is to make this technology easier to learn and much more accessible to get hands-on with. We think that we can take inspiration from movements like Raspberry Pi and Arduino, where people that may be lay people that don't have a scientific background can bring their skills and expertise to biotech and actually start teaching um, teaching themselves how to use it and maybe contribute back. Um, so I wanted to, Sandy brought up my lab earlier, and so I wanted to just get it out very quickly so that you, you have a, an idea of what it looks like. Um, so we're building a little DNA laboratory, and the idea is that with this, within about three to four hours, you could extract DNA from a sample. You can hold it even higher. <laughs> you could ex <laughs> 
So the idea is with a piece of equipment like this, you could extract DNA from a sample, you could target a specific gene, say a gene related to your taste receptors, how can you taste bitterness? Uh, you could copy that specific segment um, and then you could visualize it and you could compare that to a reference and you could say, okay, well, this is the version of the gene that I've got. I'm not particularly um, receptive to detecting bitterness, so maybe I'll like the Brussels sprouts at Christmas better. Um, so the goal with this is to reduce the cost of the technology. One of the biggest barriers to entry with biotech is actually much more the, the knowledge um, once you get the cost of the hardware and the cost of the reagents out of the way. Biotechnology is not a technology that we have built or designed ourselves. It's a technology that we're still just starting to understand. Um, so our goal really is to bring the cost of the reagents and the hardware down to enable... Um, the barrier to lower the barrier to entry for people to get access. Um, and we're doing this as part of um, a bit of a social movement, uh, which is called um, biohacking or DIY bio or biotechnology. There are people that are teaching themselves how to do biology or biotechnology outside of institutions, um, outside of academic labs. Um, now, you can, you can have a debate a little bit about the quality of the science that they do, but the fact is that um, someone uh, with a computer software engineer, for example, with no previous experience of molecular biology, um, is able to replicate an experiment that 20 years ago only a scientist was able to do. Um, so, I'd encourage you to check out the London Biohack Space, which is London's community lab because um, that's where I'm a member of. And we've, um, we run workshops there from teaching people how to genotype themselves to actually getting hands-on with CRISPR um, and exploring what that technology looks like. Um, as a bit of a heads-up, it's often a lot more disappointing than what people imagine it's going to be. <laughs> um, so in, the, in my experience of, um, of starting Bento Lab and getting involved and embedded into the culture of biotech startups, um, I wanted to raise three points. And firstly, one was the culture of innovation. Second was looking briefly at regulation. And then the third was looking at education and skills. Um, so last year, I left a PhD in synthetic biology to push forwards the startup. Um, and that was uh, challenging from the point of view of leaving a, t a PhD is a bit taboo, um, but also in respect of um, the resources that we were able to find to support the startup. It seems to me, at least from my experience, um, that if you're starting a company where you're developing an app or something that isn't actually physical, <laughs> it's a lot easier to do from your bedroom. Um, with biotech startups, one of the things that's been lacking within my community of, of peers is access to um, easy, easy accessible um, laboratory space. So if you want to prototype a biotech idea, where are you going to go to do that? Um, there, are, there is a hub within London called Simbi City, but um, their space is relatively limited. Um, I think that there's a lot of um, scope for pushing forwards and enabling biotech um, startups to emerge by actually creating better spaces and better cultures for taking risks. Um, in my experience of being in the US, uh, being an entrepreneur is almost like the most applauded <laughs> career path you could choose. 
Um, in the UK, it's a lot more risky for science graduates or PhD students to step away from that secure um, kind of safe hold and actually take risks. Um, there are some... There are some uh, advances that I'm seeing that help that. So, for example, there's a program called Deep Science Ventures. They're a bit like Entrepreneur First, but for scientists. They take people for three months and get them to have a go at um, starting a company. Again, how, uh, how well that works is also questionable. But um, And then there's competitions like Hello Tomorrow, where it's a deep science competition that rewards people for coming up with um, a really great idea. And I think that it's actually... Um, we need to be able to push um, for more innovation and and support people to take risk. Um, if we want to be able to reach a point where we have uh, lots of businesses that fail fast and fail better. Um, so, and then in terms of um, regulation, so last year in April, I was at a meeting with Robin um, discussing um, human gene editing. I'll let Robin talk about that a little bit more. Um, but what struck me at that meeting was that the UK has the opportunity to be a leader in terms of um, reg uh, responsible but flexible regulation. Um, so in terms of um, synthetic biology in 2012, the UK government published a report, um, the Synthetic Biology Roadmap. And this was something that has established us as world leaders um, in the field of synthetic biology. And we've had delegates from the UK that have gone all over the world to talk about this roadmap, including the US. The US has been asking us for help in establishing their own roadmap. Um, so with gene editing, I think we have the, the opportunity to also put ourselves at the forefront of how we, how we do regulation. Um, and then the last point that I just wanted to bring up is, so within this um, community biology space, there's a huge amount of uh, computer software engineers, electrical engineers, people with huge amounts of talent that are very good at teaching themselves the skills they need to be able to use to do their job. Um, and these people are trying to teach themselves how to get involved in biology. And what they're ending up resorting to is going on master's programs or PhD programs because they can't find enough information online to get a way in. Um, and I think this is something where um, we have, again, pushing for um, easier access um, for educational um, skills and resources that also go down and are embedded in schools, but also reach out to those highly skilled um, kind of uh, uh, workforce that we're going to need as we bring biotechnology and information technologies together. Thank you, Beth. Robin, news from China. <laughs> so um, uh, the trip to, to Hong Kong and China was very interesting, and I've learned lots of new things. The problem is I only got, just got back on Thursday evening, so my brain is still hovering over somewhere in the Far East. So whether I remember anything is a, is a different matter. Um, so, well, I can talk more generally, but I mean, I think the, um, the general answer to the question for me is, well, yes, maybe. Um, there are some issues, uh, one of which is actually the international landscape where we have some serious competitors. Um, and, of course, uh, the Far East being um, really important competitors, and that's not just China, which is pouring a huge amount of money into 
um, into science generally, um, and certainly into biotech. Um, but of course, you've also got um, South Korea, Japan, um, other countries there. Um, I was there to actually discuss genetic technologies and try and understand, in Beijing at least, to, to try and understand how they regulate um, that aspect of, of both research and applications. And it was very informative. Um, there's quite a lot of parallels with the UK, actually, um, in some respects. And by genetic technologies, we meant anything to do with understanding DNA, so DNA sequencing, um, for example, um, uh, altering DNA, uh, so genome editing, of course, was a, a hot topic, um, and um, gene synthesis and, and things like that. And, of course, it was dealing with um, not just humans, but also um, animals and plants. And I'm actually a little disappointed that the life sciences industrial strategy does not seem to mention um, farm animals or plants at all. So it's completely missing a huge um, important sector, um, which uh, um, I think is a big mistake because, because there's, there's huge potential in that domain to, to do some new things and to do some um, exciting things and become um, a, better, a bit of a leader in that field um, because at the moment... So the, the, one of the reasons, I guess, why um, we don't have much investment in that area is because of the regulations, uh, which at the moment um, mean that uh, it's very, very... It's not illegal to, but it's very, very difficult to get permission to grow any genetically engineered crops um, or animals in the UK or anywhere in Europe. There's some genetically modified maize in southern Spain, but that's about it at the moment. Um, actually, the same is true in... It's not... The same isn't true in China, but... Um, but uh, they don't grow genetically modified crops in China except for uh, genetically modified cotton because they're not eating it. Um, and um, see, where my brain is somewhere else. Um, anyway, no um, fruit. Um, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> okay. There's a virus which affects this particular fruit, which is very common, and actually 95%... Someone knows? Papaya. Papaya, yes. So 95% papaya, roughly, is genetically modified. And so that's grown there and eaten there, but the public don't really know. <laughs> so there's some public reluctance um, to, to genetically modified crops. Um, and you think that's strange. Why doesn't the Chinese government just say, eat it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they seem to be concerned about what the, about acceptance, and I suspect there's also some high ups in in the government who are also nervous about it. So, um, so regulation is important. So if if we have an opportunity um, coming out, of, I hate Brexit. Oh, please, I don't want to talk about it. But um, talk about it. I know we are. It it does give us an opportunity to perhaps go our own way in, in regulation uh, in, with respect to um, genetic modified crops and animals um, in terms of human genome editing. Um, 
So, of course, somatic genome editing for humans is, is already taking place in, in the UK in some respects, treating leukemia, for example. So, so, that, so that's making changes that won't be inherited yes, by the next sorry. generation. Sorry, yep. thank you. Um, uh, of course, um, and that's, that's also going on in, in, in many other countries. Um, I'm not sure that there's any big trial going on in, or proposed to take place in the UK, which is a little bizarre, for genetic diseases like, say, thalassemia or sickle cell disease or these others. They are going or about to start in the US and in China. Um, uh, germline genome editing, where you make a change that could be um, in, inherited, um, is, of course, not being done anywhere at the moment, as far as we are aware. Um, but it's um, certainly something worth considering because if you're thinking about, you know, it, it's, it's not just making products that are going to make money in a biotech industry that's going to be good for the UK. It's having healthier people. And the cost of, of suffering from a disease, lifelong disease is incredibly expensive. So if you can use genome editing, so either somatically or heritably, to avoid lifetime costs of, of care, um, it's of great economic advantage. So... Um, getting the regulatory framework right is really important, and it's important to do it now or soon as possible. But of course, what is our government worried about at the moment? Brexit. So they're they're unlikely to, I think, to get their act together to deal with things which we need solving now. Um, so, um, and then of course the other big issue, which is discussed in the life sciences strategy is the ability, uh, so mobility and the ability to be able to recruit um, experts from other countries. Uh, and that's something that really concerns me. Uh, we, we have some promises from government, but they're not very clear promises. Um, and there's got to be the ability to have qualified people coming to the UK. Thank you, Robin. And just before we bring the, pan, the, uh, the audience in, uh, I'm going to put each of you on the spot because I want everyone in the room to be on the same page. Um, if you had to give a concise, lay-friendly definition of certain terms, I want you all to try and do this in two or three sentences. Um, Elliot, how would you define biotechnology? Okay, uh, so biotechnology uh, is the industry that um, these days is anything from very early uh, research all the way through to enormous multinationals whose primary focus is proteins as treatments. Okay. Bethan, synthetic biology, can you give us a concise definition? Um, using engineering principles to design biology, so design genetic circuits for creating products. Okay. Robin, step back from germline somatic. Can you just give a lay-friendly explanation of what genome editing actually is? Okay. So we, we've had methods for altering, altering genes in, in animals and plants for, for many years, but these have usually involved um, adding um, an extra copy of a gene uh, or using very complex techniques, uh, which are... Um, not very efficient to modify the genes of, of certain animals. Um, but the, all these techniques were very um, uh, labor-intensive, inefficient, uh, definitely unsafe for, for use in, in humans. Uh, the new methods allow... Um, a, a, they basically target an enzyme 
to the precise sequence of DNA that you want to alter. Um, they can make a cut in that DNA, and that relies on um, all the methods rely on some mechanism of DNA repair. They can make a, a cut all the way through, so you have double-stranded cut, um, and there are different mechanisms that gets repaired. It can just um, try and stick the two broken ends back together and uh, often make a little error. So that's a very good way of making a mutation, uh, which can be helpful in some cases, so it's not always a bad thing to do. Um, or you can use something called homology-directed repair. You have to introduce the DNA sequence you want to get incorporated, replace the endogenous sequence with. You introduce that at the same time, a DNA template, and that basically ends up replacing um, the sequence that you, you, in, in a way that you wanted. Uh, the new methods, and in fact there was a paper, paper published uh, Wednesday evening, Thursday morning in Nature, which was on, on this base editing methods, which allows you to alter just one single base pair in the DNA code. Uh, incredibly powerful method, very, very, very accurate. So, so in a nutshell, genome editing as a whole, would it be fair to say it, it means making deliberate, precise alterations to DNA sequences in living cells? Yes, and in, but in also in an efficient way that may well be safe. Brilliant. Can I have questions and comments from the floor? I'll start at the front here if there's any roving mics. Sorry to bring you all the way to the front, and I'll work my way backwards. We welcome questions, we welcome comments. If you keep them brief, we can fit many people in. I'll start over here in the... In the yes, please, you, sir. Um, Robin was talking just now about uh, genome editing, and... I want to link this to the point that Bethan was making about this wild west of people being able to you do this for themselves, democratising the technology. If you're going to edit genomes, I think you want to know what effect that's going to have. So whether you've edited a cell line or whether you've modified a mouse or let's say you want to do something really bold like modify the dog genome because you thought that would be a good model for Alzheimer's disease or something. There's been a big debate in science about reproducibility um, it hasn't really got into the media yet. It's not something the public are talking about. But Nature, there's been a whole stream of articles about why so many apparently promising developments fail. You know, only 10% of landmark drug studies in cancer actually went through. If we're focusing on technology, don't we also have to think about the quality of the science? Don't we have to ask whether these people who are going to be using this technology in a democratic way are also going to understand questions like evidence and data and reliability. Moving back, well, can we go to this side and then I will I'll move slowly back. Yeah. Thank you. Um, when I'm doing something in the lab, it's often cheaper and quicker to outsource certain tasks like gene synthesis out to other countries where there's a lower cost base. So. Is there a worry that in the UK we're going to spend an awful lot of public money generating ideas and then the economic activity and wealth that comes out of those ideas will be generated in other countries? I'll move a few rows back. There's two people next to each other down here. Um, yes, gentlemen in a blue. Yep, you two. Basically. Um, yep. So, uh, I think uh, some nice introductions and really just an encouragement maybe to, uh, uh, to think bigger and, and broader than just health. Health is great and important, uh, but I really second uh, Robin's emphasis on uh, agriculture uh, and the possibilities for uh, coming out of the, the EU. 
Uh, on the one hand, there's the possibility to rethink uh, regulation, uh, and I think we should really be prepared uh, for a public debate around that, right? That's what the, pos the possibility of Brexit raises, right? Uh, which uh, won't necessarily come out the way that, that we wanted unless we uh, uh, kind of get out there and, and make the case for, uh, for the potential of GM, which I think is in genetically modified organisms, which are really uh, the surface has on only been scratched. Uh, and, you know, I would also add, you know, look at... Uh, uh, agriculture coming out of the EU, of course, also raises the possibility of, well, presumably the uh, CAP is going to go, presumably the agricultural sector is really going to get shaken up in a big way. So I think that, you know, really opens up the possibility for, for, for kind of new technologies around that. Uh, just very quickly, two other examples of that, uh, the kind of... Um, uh, Jay Kiesling, that Bethan mentioned as a kind of visionary who is one of the people who, who inspired her, uh, you know, I think is a really great example. Uh, you know, has the idea that rather than doing chemical engineering the old way, building uh, these big plants for, for, for kind of synthesis, let's just kind of design microbes, bacteria, yeast to, to kind of uh, synthesize um, uh, all the chemicals that we need. Uh, you know, maybe a, a little bit more distant than where we are right now, but I think he's showing and other people are showing that, you know, these, these things can be uh, built right now and should, should we be thinking about that? Uh, and then, uh, again, thinking where the science can take us, maybe kind of uh, perhaps kind of 10, 20 years down the line, but just really thinking about biomaterials. I mean, the way that science is going, uh, potentially, uh, you know, biology has the capacity to build uh, more or less everything uh, 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 within our, our, our built environment and kind of Im improve on those uh, those sorts of materials. So um, not, not an alternative to the emphasis on health, but should we be thinking, uh, you know, about these bigger possibilities too? Gentlemen, next to you, other side. Yep. Well, thank you. It's really interesting. I was. My question is quite similar in a sense that um, can the rest of the panel reflect on the. Um, limitations that EU regulation puts on the development of biotechnology and, and what concrete changes would you recommend for a new regulatory regime going forwards? And just one additional data point, Robin didn't mention there's a news that, news that just came out of China this week about the development of a new um, rice variety which can grow in, in salinated soil and could feed an extra 200 million people. So it seems to me that this, there is a kind of boundless potential for this kind of technology and we have seen the precautionary principle against um, GMOs in the EU so I mean the question about whether the government will actually do it or not is, is another matter because they seem to be bodging the whole process but I think if we can have a public discussion about it we can, we can start putting pressure on to think about these things so can you be quite precise about the changes that you would like to see? A last point before coming back to the panel, then I'll go out again. Can I take the chair of the previous session, Rob Lyons, who's just at the back there? Yeah. Um, I was very struck by something that Elliot said about Ireland earlier on. Um, one is about what government does, because, as you said, you, you describe it as fiscal engineering, but basically slashing taxes from multinational corporations so that they, they'll come to Ireland. Um, and two, about sharing the growth as it were, so that you know, everybody in society benefits. I wonder what the effect of, the, of that is in, in Ireland, because on the one hand, lots of good jobs, lots of you know, relatively cutting-edge manufacturing going on, so that's good. But on the other hand, a lot of that profit is getting exported. It's one of the peculiarities of Ireland is that you look at GB, GB, 
GDP figures, they're actually kind of misleading away because an awful lot of it gets exported back to America or whatever. And the companies that are involved aren't paying that much tax. So there's a, there's a tension there. I wondered, wondered to, to what extent we would want to copy that model um, in terms of encouraging biotech or new industries. I'll let the panel come back briefly. Don't try and answer everything, but whatever interests you most. And just to remind you, one of the t things we have on the table include whether there's a tension between democratising science and the quality and reproducibility of the science, whether we risk generating knowledge that will be used elsewhere and won't, won't benefit us economically in this country, uh, possibilities in agriculture and biomaterials, the, uh, whether there's precise changes in regulation that you might recommend in light of Brexit, and examples, the example of Ireland. Don't try and answer all of that, Elliot, but would you like to pick one or two things? Yeah, sure, I'd like to answer all of them, but let's yeah. do, let's do that. Okay, um, outsourcing uh, of the economy, and this may pick up a little on the Ireland point as well for Rob. So, um, uh, biotech started on the back of antibiotic by antibody technology, antibody technology, state-funded medical research council in this country. Uh, two products uh, this year will sell just under $20 billion worth of sales worldwide, both owned by U.S. companies. If we took our uh, base tax rate of 10% on sales uh, of return, to, then there's $2 billion a year for about 15 years. That could have been here but it was actually exported after the idea. One of the things the industrial strategy tries to address directly for health, recognising it's not crops and it's, and it's not um, uh, animal science uh, in that sense, um, is about the, retain, the retention of the economic benefit of the investment made. So, so, and I think there are a lot of good things there to do, but it requires entrepreneurs to be willing to stick around for a long time, for decades, to make that work. The let's fix it and flog it, is a method that has been adopted a lot uh, in this country, in particular because of the nature of the financing. That's a whole other lecture for another hour, so I'll save, save you that one. Uh, Rob, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about tax over a beer. Um, let me, uh, because we're asked for a specific one, uh, concrete changes to the regs. So uh, if you go to the US and you look at cancer treatment, so my company, Immunicore, develops treatments for cancer, part of the pathway of your end stage, stage three, stage four cancer, that's the, that's the stage you have just before you die, is a clinical trial. Um, that is part of normal practice in most of the centres, big cancer centres in the US. It's not normal practice here. We need to get to a point where our regulations allow easy clinical trialling so that patients can get onto one after another after another of clinical trials. And if you're diagnosed with end stage cancer and your first clinical trial gets you, I'll be one second, first clinical trial gets you three months, and then you come off that and the next one gets you two years, the next one gets you four years, suddenly where you're going to be dead in two months, you've gained half a decade. And that's the benefit of clinical trialling. One of the specific changes is around how we make clinical trialling easier post-Brexit. Robin, Brexit makes you literally tear your hair out, it seems, but do you have your own uh, specific... I still have more than <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Specific desire with regulations. Do you have any? Um, um, okay, well, I guess the, the traditional European view of regulating things has been um, sort of precautionary principle. So if there's a possibility of, that something can do harm, then don't go down that route at all. The traditional, uh, actually, UK view is, is a risk-benefit analysis. And um, it would be lovely if we could focus more on that. Um, 
uh, in the future. Uh, I, I mean, that's generally. So, for example, um, and then and then the other the other aspect to that actually is um, so European view in terms of say genetic modi modification or, or genome editing. Well, genetic modification has always been. It's the method that they want to they regulate. So anything that's been genetically modified, of course, has to be nasty and dangerous. Um, that's rubbish because it's, it's the product that needs to be regulated. You need to focus on what you're doing and what, what the specifics of the, the product. And there's a hope um, with genome editing because you're making such precise changes that actually many, in many cases they're going to be indistinguishable from changes that could have occurred naturally or through conventional breeding, breeding methods. Um, and, uh, you know, at the moment, that decision is being looked at by the European Courts of Justice, and we expect to hear in 18 months. <laughs> okay? So that, that's, that's, that sort of um, problem is, is, is really bad. Can I make just one, one point about reproducibility? I know Bethan is probably going to talk about this one. Um, just to say, it, it, it's a... It is a big problem in science generally, um, and often actually it's not the quality of the science that's being done. Um, it's uh, things that we were not necessarily aware of when we're doing it. Um, and just to give you an example from my own research, uh, we were studying a mutation in a particular gene, doesn't matter what it, what it is, uh, which in, in, in mice gave um, this very reliable phenotype uh, where the pituitary makes only 20% of all the different hormones pituitary makes. This mirrors uh, humans with a mutation in the same gene, so we're partly using it as a model for that. We relocate the institute from Mill Hill to the Crick. The mice have no problem now. We've completely lost the phenotype. We suspect that it's, it's gut microbiota that's responsible. So this is incredibly interesting scientifically, but, you know, if we'd published a paper a year ago from our work in Mill Hill, we would now have it be having to um, say we can't reproduce it. Ah. Yeah. Bethan, anything to add to that briefly? Um, I think, so, in terms of citizen science, I might just ask what is the purpose of citizen science? Because it's not always to be able to reproduce the data. Often it's addressing a question of an interest of discovery or to promote um, a discussion so the people that are investigating CRISPR it's to push that out um, and I don't actually think that it's ever going to get to a point where citizen science is necessarily capable of replicating the same kind of quality of standard science because they're working with much more limited resources um, when I think one of the challenges with science is to get to a point where we have better ways of collecting standards so what room is the temperature for example when you're doing code that all compiles and in some ways the product is the documentation of the standards and what it is and that's not something that we're able to do with um, biology yet but I think getting more people involved means pushing for that because you have people going what kind of buffer concentration are you using? Do I have to weigh it? All sorts of weird questions. Um, I thought it was, in terms of um, the limitations of regulation, that was really interesting. There's a fantastic synthetic biology project um, in Cambridge where they're looking to de detect arsenic. They're trying to create a biosensor that would turn red when it detects arsenic presence in water. Um, and they've been working on this, for, I think, for upwards of 10 years now. And they've had to outsource the testing 
of the actual genetic circuit, because of course in Europe you're not really allowed to release GMOs. Um, and I think that that might be one specific concrete area the UK could do better is um, one of like when do you release you know GMOs after ten years of testing? And what if you haven't the problem that you're trying to solve is already solved by then? Um, how do we do that better? Um, yeah. I'll bring some more people in. Can I? There's a couple of outstretched hands near the back, not quite at the back. Yes, you're next to one of them. You, you please, sir. If you could stand up, we might be able to see you better. Uh, okay. Lots of stuff. Um, just a, a kind of broad question in sense of um, how much of what we're talking about here is um, a consequence of the debate about public health. Um, so there's lots of stuff about kind of wellness and uh, preventative medicine. So obviously what you're saying is some brilliant, amazing research in terms of cancer, but there also must be quite a large sort of momentum behind um, the wellness debate, um, which is, can be both positive and quite negative and cause us to use sort of genome technology in a way that uh, is very preventative, where perhaps the majority of the population right now are very healthy. So I kind of wonder how much of what we're talking about now in terms of this new economy is very much around the kind of the, the, the politics of public health. On the same row as you, other side? Yeah. I just wanted to say that um, as an internationalist, I very much resent the EU preventing the forward movement in genome technology that I think most of us would like to see. They, why the European Court of Justice, a bunch of old men in wigs, knows more about biotech than the scientists who've continually recommended going forward with genetic modification is a mystery to me. And I, I challenge all Remainers here to tell me exactly why judges should decide the medical fate of millions. Uh, I, I quote nature when I say that uh, gene editing has been, and I quote, habitually paralyzed in the EU since 2015. So I wondered if the panel could come back and match my ire on this question. Um, you could genetically modify me, of course. But uh, the, the question I have a bit more sober than this, which is the question before us, folks, is can biotech build a whole new industrial sector for UK uh, economy and everything. And we're all behind the, the, the use value side of it, what it could do to our lives and the science that it mobilizes. But I've just looked up and the 225 companies in industrial biotech in Britain employ 8,800 people. There are 50,000 people in medical devices right now in Britain, and that's before IT really makes all the inroads that we can look forward to in the next few years. So are we really talking about a whole new sector here with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of durable jobs? It seems to me we have to embrace agriculture, whether animal or plant, to hope to get to that number of jobs. Or are we just talking about some fantastic research for people in white coats, but that's uh, with great results, but not a big employment creator? Did you give there, James? 8,800 in industrial biotech ah, among okay. 225 companies. Now, that's not the whole biotech thing. On the other hand, if you okay. read Bioeconomy, which includes... Uh, our, our farming friends, then they'll tell you it's five million. Yeah, there are, there are other figures happy. in the industrial strategy, but let's move on. Um, can I go to the hand on the other side of the aisle, slightly further back, and then I'll come forward again. Thank you ever so much. Uh, slightly further back, yes. 
Yeah, just to come back to that gentleman over there, really, um, the regulatory framework to me seems that is actually a reflection of public opinion. And the battle is not with the bureaucrats, whether that bureaucrat is in Brussels or whether it's in Whitehall. Um, it does not matter. The battle is with the hearts and minds of the population. And there is, you're in absolute cloud cuckoo land if you think that all of a sudden, uh, because of Brexit, the British population is going to all of a sudden start eating, thinking that um, GM crops and uh, all the rest of the genetically modified stuff is going to all of a sudden become popular. It's not. It's nothing to do with EU. It's basically about us. I actually believe that GM crops should be uh, in this country, but I just the, the general population doesn't, and we're not going to have a, a, a change of mind just because of Brexit. Okay. Can we come forward... Um, a little bit. Um, was there just a um, limiting factors do you think we should be overcoming to truly create a biotech revolution that is eliminate, for instance, inheritable diseases and significantly expand the life, lifespan of people? And secondly, when do you think um, aging is going to be considered a disease that needs to be treated and that needs to be investigated? Okay. All right, I'll take two at the front. Go on. I did a doodle once and worked out that um, I think if you, if, you, if you fenced off a small part of the ocean and you had algae with 6% conversion efficiency, 60% into oil, you could probably produce about seven tonnes of oil for every person on the, um, on the planet. Is that the sort of thing that uh, if you tried hard enough, you could do, presumably, if you could actually bio, uh, genetically modify um, uh, five crops? You, 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 that's the sort of thing you, you could if you just put the effort into it. Or are there major problems? Did you want to ask something? Yes, just... I a quick comment. I do believe that perhaps there's uh, popular sentiments against this, and I think there should be a public discussion, but in general it leads me to a point where questioning that this politicization of these issues is problematic to begin with, and maybe we should, of course, now we have to overcome a politics to get out of these rules, but eventually I think there's a, there's a fallacy in, in, in having the, the general public be the final arbitrator of uh, uh, think of them as such of these kind of particular issues, which should be much more in the in, in the domain of of um, businesses and professional organisations. Okay, there were two patient people at the back. Yes, the lady with her hand up there, and then I think there was someone behind you as well. But we'll start with you, please. Um, so I want to pick up on the points around agriculture and biotech. So delivering the biotech solutions like things like GM2 farmers, if the regulations allowed it, actually getting on the ground to farmers. And also like new technologies that might be coming up within that field, things like in vitro food, like lab meat, in vitro dairy, those kind of technologies, and just kind of hear thoughts around those. Okay. Was there one person behind you as well? No? Okay, fine. Then this, these two people on the other side of the aisle will be the last people to come in. If you could keep it brief, and we'll fit you both in. Um... I heard mention of a health-driven economy, so I'm wondering, um, do you, any of you have any fears regarding the commercialization of um, biotech, whether it's actually widely available to everyone, and also about the quality of that biotech being made available as well? Okay, person on the other side of you, if you could keep it short and sweet. Hi, um, in terms of agriculture, I'd like to hear some of your opinions on the current situation with Monsanto and 
corn, genetically modified corn, and the effect that's having on agriculture in Mexico. Okay. So there's a lot on the table. I'm afraid time has beaten us. I'm going to ask you all to give a concluding uh, minute or two, uh, summing up your thoughts on this issue. You can reflect on some of what's been said. Keep in mind EU relationship of na national borders to science will be discussed in a specific session later this afternoon. So you can keep that powder a bit dry if you like. I'm going to get, get you to speak in the reverse order that you started in. So Robin, can you kick us off, please? Okay. Um, I mean, I can't give you the results of it yet, but I'm involved with the Royal Society in, in a, a program of, of public engagement about um, genetic technologies. Uh, so this is in UK specific. And just to, just to say that, I mean, the preliminary results talking about, um, for example, GM crops, is that actually the, the public aren't really necessarily against it, certainly if they understand what the, the issues are. Um, and again, it's the, the common view is that if you focus on the product and not the, the method, then, then it's fine. So that's all they're really concerned about. And it's the, it's the sort of scary... Um, uh, if you like, aunties who are saying, you know, oh, all GM is bad that, that creates the problem. So you shouldn't listen to the Soil Association and, and other groups, for example. Um, so better understanding from the public is going to help in, in all of this, getting it all accepted. So all of you talk to all your friends and family. They talk to all their friends and family, and eventually we'll, we'll have a um, UK society that's much more supportive. Um, and um, I, someone mentioned um, lab-grown meat, um, for example. Meat. Um, of course, uh, there are, there are um, actually very relevant uh, technologies that, that are coming out of biotech. I know um, so a, a scientist called Pat Brown, who, who started up a company called Impossible Foods in San Francisco, which is essentially using biotech to make stuff that looks and tastes like meat, but is entirely made of plant and uh, microorganisms products. Absolutely fantastic. So, Thanks. Beth, and your final thoughts? Um, I wanted to bring up the fact that David Willits, the former science minister um, for the UK, had been trying to put together an investment fund for biotech. And as of yet, they've not succeeded in securing the funding that they needed um, for that investment fund. Uh, I think that in terms of um, fears of commercialization or um, even looking at um, lab meat, some of the things that we're spending money on are, so Impossible Foods, great. Other one, Memphis Meat, where they're trying to actually culture meat. I think that's a waste of time. Um, and I think that there's, we're investing too much time focusing on issues of hype and issues of fear when actually we need to be pushing ahead. I'm worried that we're running out of time. Okay, hold your applause till the end. Um, Elliot, your final thoughts, please. Yeah, sure. So um, if you get a chance to look through the uh, health, life sciences, industrial strategy, which therefore delineates from uh, animals and plants, um, in there is a thing called the Health Advanced uh, Research Programme. The intention of that is to catalyse all of the convergence that you've heard before. It mimics a thing called DARPA, which came out of the US for defence. Uh, they invested in things like the internet and satellite navigation before they existed, and they've become pretty useful beyond defence, um, and I think the health uh, view will do that. Um, one thing to bear in mind is that ageing uh, will and is a problem in that we are all getting older and getting older healthier. Um, it brings with it other diseases, um, and I think 
However, that we should be optimistic, not pessimistic about that. And I'll leave with this because the Australian uh, research group in uh, Adelaide last year produced a kidney from scratch, which, has got, which functions, has got 50 nephrons, which can be given back to a patient who has kidney failure. More of that to come. I'd like to finish by thanking the sponsor of this session, Immunocore, the people volunteering here in the room, the Barbican hosts, and most of all, our three wonderful speakers. Can we now give them a round of applause?